all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? I'm Rachel. I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. I just decided you didn't seem up for a, an energetic hello. I just didn't know what to expect, that's all. <laughs> uh, follow us since Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, at All Bad Things Pod. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group and our Discord. Do all of those things. And if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, you're probably not listening to us on Apple Podcasts. I was going to say, then you can't hear us. Mm, I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> I've got two support tickets in. There you go. Yeah, but it's a wee bit frustrating. That uh, Yeah, we get, uh, yeah, I mean, we get quite a few lessons off of that. We so. do. Our lessons have precipitously declined. Mm-hmm. Due to the uh, lack of updating on Apple's part. So we'll see. It's been a little bit of a week of pod pod disappointments. <laughs> <laughs> Between the uh, disappearance of new episodes on Apple and uh, someone who <laughs> wanted to, us to <laughs> interview them until they didn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was super disappointing. Yeah. I mean, you never know. It could still happen. I don't think so, because I not. shamed them. You did. That's <laughs> why I was thinking it might still happen. You never know. Mm. I got you, because you think they might be shamed into actually doing it? Yeah, probably not. Yeah, Who I knows? don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> what you drinking? I am having America's finest national local beer. What did you have last night? And what happened last night? Last night, I had a Labatt Blue. <laughs> Several of them. Yes. <laughs> and um, what happened is the Buffalo Bills came out and just like bludgeoned another team to death without really even trying that hard. They still they they turned the ball over four times and still won by twenty one points, as if to say like like we're trying to play with you. Right. You're just, you're just not. You're we just were not, trying to give you a chance. You're just not as good. Yeah, so. Like when Jesse bats at a roach yeah. and lets it get away like, for a little bit. It's like, uh, you know, there are like roach parts around Los Angeles this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Who, correct me if I'm wrong, were the Super Bowl champions of the prior season. Yes. Post-season. Post yes. So. So. That is all to say. <laughs> they made a statement. They <laughs> made a statement. There you go. <laughs> and that statement is... Fuck you. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, it's a strong way to start the season. Yes. So, and uh, we now have a double or nothing bet going on as to whether the, it, it, what we'll do if the Bills now, win. Now she has to get multiple cars. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Due to financial restrictions and practicality concerns. We're, we're getting a rolls. <laughs> oh, I was watching Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, uh, and somebody got one of the real husbands of Beverly Hills got the real wife, a rose gold Bentley. 
worth that a quarter million dollars. Doesn't sound like a good color. It's a very specific color that sounds, was like hot for a second. It sounds very tacky. It it it, it is pretty tacky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and a Bentley is not a Rolls Royce, so don't even. No, it's not. Do not even compare. Are Rolls is more expensive? Oh, way more. Like. 220 like I'm not sure they even start there anymore. I'm going to guess they start at like 350. Rolls-Royces? Yeah. Are they the most expensive of the luxury cars pretty much? Um not the sports cars. Of the luxury sedans probably. Okay. Yeah, probably. They're the ones that open backwards, right? So, yes, they do. Mhm. Mm Suicide doors. The that's doors what they yeah. call. A very insensitive name, but yes, <laughs> they do call them that. Um but our bet is that uh, if, well, we, we established the bet last week, I think, mm -hmm. which was that I have to get a new car if the Bills win the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I get to keep it as long as I want if the Bills lose. <laughs> but the car itself's not going to hold up <laughs> no, to that. <laughs> no, it won't, but still. <laughs> you have more to gain than I have to lose. We'll put it that way. Oh, yeah, way more. <laughs> but we also agreed for double or nothing, whoever loses is also going to do the research for the challenger. Yes. As suggested by, I think it was Nicole in our uh, I'm guessing everybody, either Twitter or listener group. I'm guessing everybody is now rooting for Buffalo to lose. <laughs> to make you do the research? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, otherwise it'd just kind of be a normal... Well, I mean, that's the... Yeah. Normal episode, huh? Yeah. That's how we like it, though. Yes. Well, I am drinking a delicious Harris Teeter Zero Sugar Ginger Ale. Um, because I need to drive to a gig after this, so. To the, to the teeter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> cheers to the teeter. Uh, a cheater teeter. Cheer, cheer, cheer teeter. Teeter teeter. <laughs> anyway, we got an episode, right? Yes, I, I mean, I believe so. <laughs> I mean, do we? <laughs> and it's not a listener script. It's a Rachel script. Okay. Um, so what is the type of disaster that everybody loves for some reason that we can't figure out. Uh, an air disaster, usually. That's right. Yeah. So we're going back to our old reliable we're going back to the sky. We are taking to the skies. That's right. In today's episode of El Al Flight 2. Sorry, that's the wrong number. <laughs> <laughs> I put 252 and I don't know why. Hello, Flight 1862. <laughs> Are you laughing because I crossed it out and put it in yes, the right one? Like, well, in case we send the script to somebody. Still. <laughs> this, uh, this disaster is also known as Bilmer Ramp, which means Bilmer disaster okay. in Dutch. Okay. On October 4th, 1992... El Al Flight 1862 crashed into an apartment building in Amsterdam, killing 40... Damn it. 43 people. <laughs> I did another typo. 43 people. It's a good thing you proofread it. <laughs> in what remains the deadliest aviation disaster in Netherlands history. Yeah, I don't know. I just I messed up the whole top end of this. I think the rest should be okay. Sure we'll find a, out. Sure, you got a gig tonight. 
<laughs> You're punchy. I am. <laughs> yes, I am quite sure. Show me like, yeah, uh, the, the building's like torn down. <laughs> <laughs> I checked the time twice, so right. I know I got the right time. Okay. Primary sources were 99% Invisible, Associated Press, BBC News, Britannica, LL Airlines, Israel Airline Museum, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the National Army Museum, Netherlands Aviation Safety Board, and Wikipedia. All right. So shout out to those who suggested this topic. There were three people. Gerard, Tanya, and Ash. Oh, wow. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Tanya... Spelled T-A-N-J-A, lives in the Netherlands. Oh, wow. Okay. So. Tonya. Well, I think Tanya. No, I know, but... <laughs> you just want to pronounce it differently. Just the hell of it. Okay. So we have done episodes in the Netherlands. Uh, specifically, yeah, we did... a couple of them. Yeah. We did that, um, the Ringholt, uh, the, the St. Aurelius floods or whatever. I... It is, we, this is episode 271. <laughs> Things have happened in on that part of the earth and we've covered them. Yes. <laughs> we also Occasionally. did the Harmelin train disaster. I remember that one, yeah. I remember the name, I do not remember the disaster. Is that the first one we ever did? Something like that? It was episode 171. Uh, probably not. Now though. we're on 271. Yeah, I well, don't remember okay. at all. It's it's terrible. Lots happened in two yeah. years. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. Okay. So we are headed back to Amsterdam. Or sorry, headed back to the Netherlands. Uh, and Amsterdam is its capital. And that's where we'll be here. So uh, let's talk about the neighborhood that this occurred in. In Amsterdam, it was neighborhood of Bielmermeer, or Bielmer for short. I learned, because I looked it up, that a J is pronounced as a Y in Dutch, because otherwise I was thinking it was Bielmermeer. <laughs> Bielmermeer. <laughs> it's not. It's Bielmermeer. Anyway. Bielmer is in the Amsterdam borough of Amsterdam Zudust. Or that means Amsterdam Southeast. So it's in the southeast part of Amsterdam. Uh, The setting of this disaster, this apartment building, has its roots in a very distinctly post-World War II era. So um, I had to look it up and just super, super quick here. Do you know what the Netherlands, what happened to the Netherlands in World War II? Um... I mean, I, I'm pretty sure uh, Nazi Germany took over most of it. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because one of their main uh, bases was there. Yeah, so um, basically, yeah, what happened um, is that the Netherlands actually declared neutrality in the war. Mm-hmm. And then, like, almost immediately the Germans occupied. <laughs> just, we'll, 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 let it, we'll play dead for... Six years, seven years, eight years. Well, unfortunately, playing dead was uh, not metaphorical. No. Um, yeah. The, at first, the occupation of Germany in the Netherlands, or of Nether- the Netherlands by the Germans, was technically less violent than the occupation of other countries. That declined rapidly. Um uh, Jewish people were sent to concent- yeah. yeah. Jewish people sent to concentration camps. There was famine. Like it was bad. It, yeah. it ended up being war. <laughs> it ended up being war. Yeah. Yes, there you go. Imagine. Yeah. So, at the risk of glossing over the suffering of the Dutch people 
We're now in the post-war era. Okay, so post-World War II, the modernist art movement that had been the prime mover in the earlier part of the 20th century was moving into late modernism, just in time for the urban design and development heyday of the Cold War era. So we're not going to, don't worry, we're not going to cover the whole <laughs> modernist art movement. Uh, we're just going to talk real quick about architecture, modernist okay. architecture. So if, if I were to say picture modernist architecture, what would pop in your head? What I'm would you think of? Honestly, not sure. Maybe churches that were built like around the turn of the 20th century, something that, like that. Maybe? That's a good guess because it was a movement of like the late 18th and mm -hmm. early 19th century. Um, I have sort of like a, a seminal type of building that's modernist architecture. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Shapes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, like... that's a good way to describe it. Like yeah. geometric, right? Mm -hmm. Like um This is like a perfect square. Yes, it's yeah. it's all concrete and windows mm -hmm. and white, right? Like <laughs> sharp lines and everything. Um Art Deco was part of the sure. modernist movement. Uh the Sydney Opera House is considered a modernist. Okay. Uh uh, architecture. Frank Lloyd Wright was a modernist okay. architect, you know, just to kind of give a mental picture. And I know it's kind of an odd smattering because that, that is a range of what it was, but that's what I'm trying to convey is like concrete, glass, straight lines sort of a thing. Um, it also brings to mind Ikea. Sure. <laughs> to me, you know, things are just sort of very simple and white and <laughs> I don't know. At any rate. Comes with pegs. <laughs> Yes, and, and difficult instructions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're all called something uh, Swedish. <laughs> so at any rate, in the post-war era in Amsterdam, uh, as the Netherlands was both reconstructing and growing, as much of Europe was, a new neighborhood in Amsterdam was being conceptualized that was going to be called Bielmermeer. And I tried to look up what that meant. Could not find a translation. So I think mirror means lake. I could be wrong, but I think that's what I saw. But no Bielmer, I couldn't find a translation for. Anyway, they were going to try modernist architecture on a grand scale in the form of housing. Like developing a housing okay. development. So the planning was tasked to architects P. de Bruyne and Siegfried Nasseth. Do they sound sufficiently... Uh, Dutch. Dutch, yes. yes. <laughs> um, so as the world was in the 1960s, uh, ideas of social justice and egalitarianism were also taking hold, leading to sort of a, a grander social aspect of this project wow. of Bielmer. <laughs> hmm. Remember, they're the Dutch. They're not Americans. <laughs> Coming out of a war, though? Like, wow. <laughs> um, so not only would De Bruyne and Nasseth design... Uh, the modernist concrete and glass high-rise sort of development, they would take it one step further, laying a web of housing towers on a geometric honeycomb grid. So this is, this is actually it completed, but just so you can see what that means. Okay. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, they're to kind say of... To the least, yeah. You can see sort of the... Mm -hmm. uh, is it... What's it? Looks, six, it hexagonal? Yeah, it looks like a bunch of office buildings. But it's it kind of does. Yeah, does it looks homes. very Well, because it's industrial mm -hmm. sort of looking, right? Yeah, exactly. But the idea behind this sort of 
setup where everything's like on these angles was that every apartment would get at least a little bit of sun every day. So there was no like ideal apartment. Everybody was in the same position, sort of. Um, It was meant to be, this whole development was meant to be a living space for the middle class. And only common ground or common areas would be on the ground floor. So no one would have a ground floor apartment. Those were all common areas for like commuting. <laughs> so as the first buildings were completed in the late 60s, the idealism of the architect's design met the reality of the world. <laughs> um, infrastructure planning lagged behind the residential construction, leaving residents with just a single dirt road to get in and out of the neighborhood. And then it took a while for roads, public transportation, and stores to appear in the area. And when they did, they were difficult to navigate. Like the the housing was built first, kind of not keeping in mind the transportation and infrastructure as much as it kind of needed to. Um, So as the apartments continued to be built throughout the 70s, modernism was really starting to give way to postmodernism. And Bielmer was drawing very unfavorable comparisons to the massively failed Pruitt-Igoe projects in St. Louis, Missouri. Have you ever heard of the Pruitt-Igoe? Mm. It's it's really interesting. I watched a documentary on it once, but it was like this sort of audacious uh, housing project okay. with, of mo- like modernist architecture and everything. And it was supposed to be really cool and upper class or whatever. Not upper class, but at any rate, it was like a maintenance nightmare they didn't do they wouldn't maintain it properly it just became run down really quickly and then they ended up just demolishing the whole thing a couple mm. decades later so yeah, that's, yeah and there's a lot other behind it socially and racially and everything and <laughs> you should look into it if you're interested in the social planning failures mm. of the it has united all states the things. yes <laughs> all the markers of failure mm-hmm. So when completed, there were 31 apartment buildings of 13,000 apartments constructed, along with 13,000 storage spaces and 31 parking garages. And now it was getting snubbed for being passe. <laughs> it's like, yeah, whatever. It's it's not very accessible. It's like old fashioned at this point. We're get, moving past modernism. So... Uh, But it did create a unique situation when, in the early 70s, thousands of people immigrated from Suriname, which I had to look up where Suriname was. It's along the north coast of South America. Okay. Yeah, I would not have ever guessed that. Right? Yeah. Uh, That sounded like somebody, like came over from, like, the realm of the Hobbit or something. <laughs> it does kind of like, sound like Sur- that. Suriname. Yeah, it does a little bit sound like <laughs> here, Elvish or here, something. Here I am. Yes. <laughs> hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> so, uh, Suriname residents, I, it, so it was a, a Dutch colony at the time, and they had the right to become Dutch citizens if they wanted to. Like, they could immigrate to the Netherlands and become Dutch citizens, But in the 70s, in the early 70s, Suriname was getting really close to claiming independence. Now, if you claim independence, now you're not going to be... That's a a whole different thing. (laughs) Yeah, now you're not going to be Dutch citizens if you want to. Now you're going to be Surinams. Surinamese. Surinamese. Is apparently the... Yes. Yeah. mm -hmm. (laughs) Surinamims. What's a synonym for surinam? Surinams. Uh, So... Some people were like, well, 
we don't want to lose this right to become Dutch citizens. We're going to head to uh, the Netherlands. They've got way more money. Like, some connections. Well, also, any time a, a country declares independence, chances are there's going to be conflict. So oh, if you're like, 100%. I don't want anything to do with that, yeah. you know, with you somebody. get out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so an estimated 100,000 Surinamese people went, had, had I tailed it for the Netherlands. So all of a sudden, thousands of people were immigrating to a relatively small country. So um, they needed housing. And hey, here's a bunch of apartments nobody wants anymore because they're they're old fashioned or whatever. Um, and it seemed to be a good match if it weren't for the usual xenophobia <laughs> that frequently accompanies immigration. So some of the managers of the apartments capped the number of people coming from Suriname who were allowed to be, which is so fucking racist and xenophobic. Yeah, but that I happened. Mean, yeah. It sounds very not American surprising. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not not just calling out the Dutch here. <laughs> um, and so some immigrants were like, hey, "There's these empty apartments, and we need a place to stay." So they'd break in, change the locks, and have squatters' rights. <laughs> so that's that's it was a smart way to think about it or to to deal with that. So over the next decade or so, Bielmer became a notorious, what was then referred to as a ghetto in okay. in Amsterdam. And I say that with big air quotes of ghetto because I'm an anti-capitalist. It sure sounds to me like capitalism and landlords are exactly the problem, not the people living there. So, um, so that's Bielmer. And that's where it was in the early 90s. It was known for a lot of crime, especially property crime. Okay. So um, we're going to come back to Bielmermeer in a Be- little bit. Bielmermeer. Bielmermeer. Uh, Bielmer is like the nickname for it. Mm-hmm. So Bielmermeer. But unfortunately, we're going to come back under much sadder circumstances. But in the meantime, just in case you thought to yourself, hey, this isn't enough history for one episode. Well, you're in luck. It's a twofer. We're going to head a few thousand miles southeast to a place with eh, a little bit of history. The Middle East. Huh. What history? So I titled this next section, I Thought They Declared Peace in the Middle East. (laughs) Can you name that movie? No. I Thought They Declared Peace in the Middle East. It's clueless. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. When Cher realizes she's in love with her ex-stepbrother, which is still extremely creepy. Um, it's Paul Rudd. It is. <laughs> uh, she doesn't know how to act around him, and she's acting all weird, and they're watching the news. And he's like, what's up with you? And she's like, I thought they declared peace in the Middle East. And it's 1994 or yeah. 5, they're showing. Yeah. Anyway. So, <laughs> let's talk about the nation of Israel, shall we? Why not? <laughs> this uh, this disaster took place in Amsterdam, but it is very much an Israeli story because El Al is an Israeli airline. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as I stated, the flight that crashed was El Al flight. <laughs> I can did it again. <laughs> 1862, not 252. <laughs> I don't know why that was stuck in my head. Uh, anyway... The air, so it, LL, the airline's full name was LL Israel Airlines, 
that's a lot of ahs in there. But uh, though in Hebrew, it's, and I'll do apologies to any Hebrew speakers, El al nativ al le Israel. Okay. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> the airline was generally known as El Al <laughs> for understandable reasons, and it roughly translates from Hebrew into something like to the sky or sky words. So, the airline was founded in 1948. You know what else was founded in 1948? Israel. Yes, that's exactly correct. We were like, here. Yeah. Have this plot of land amongst all your enemies. And I bet there won't be perpetual war from here on out. Well, you basically just <laughs> ruin the plot of the next page. <laughs> yeah, long and short. I mean, and it's a way for us to siphon money to your country well, indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I never knew of the genesis of the state of Israel, so I'm gonna oh, go yeah. into it a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Just like here, have it. <laughs> well, so. This is an ancient part of the world, right? But we're just talking about the 20th century here. Otherwise, we'd be in like It's a an ancient 25... part of the world as far as humanity is concerned. Yes. Yes, exactly. So in the early 1900s, Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire, which mm-hmm. we were talking about yep. uh, yesterday or today. I forget when. Um, yeah, there's a great... Uh, they're making a modern adaptation of uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Right, which includes, World War One included very much so the Ottoman Empire and brought an end to the Ottoman yes, Empire. So, um, uh, Palestine is also historically Muslim, though for centuries Jews had also been immigrating to the area. Um, the Arab population of Palestine wasn't generally too cool with that, and there was a fair amount of anti-Zionist sentiment with Zionism being the m- movement for to establish a Jewish nation, just like in the Matrix. <laughs> well, well, they are they are the last humans on Earth are from Zion. Oh, I didn't remember that. I haven't seen that movie in forever. Yeah. Um, now, since this was the 1900s and all, of course, there's plenty of colonizing to be had. World powers put their little fingers all in Palestine. <laughs> yes, little puppet masters. Yeah, so it was just like a soup. Yes. I'm going to just put my hand in it. Ew. <laughs> um, regardless of the desires of the actual residents of Palestine. Um, well, we, I mean. We've never let that stop facts us Facts over feelings, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Colonialism yeah. doesn't care about your feelings. That's a fact. <laughs> so greatly at work in the area during World War II was, among others, Great Britain. Uh, eventually, as part of the League of Nations, Palestine was giving, given a designation to be its own power, separate from the now-fallen Ottoman Empire, but the League also supported Jewish immigration into Palestine, which, again, yeah. the Arab population, not too happy yeah. about. Regardless, the rest of the 20s kind of passed without too many kerfuffles in terms of, like, Relatively speaking, you know. There's just a few beheadings. Yeah, right. There weren't hundreds of them. But there, the re- was, there were just dozens. <laughs> well, that's the thing. The reason that things had a little bit of a lid on it was that net Jewish immigration to Palestine. So people coming in versus people. Uh, well, there was a, people yeah, it was a feeling out, feeling out period. It's like, <laughs> yeah. how's, like, how's this going to... Nope, let's get the swords. 
Of course, now as the 1930s dawned, uh, things didn't... I don't know if anyone knows this, but they just didn't go so great for Jewish people. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> um, yeah, sentiments were pretty problematic for Jewish people in Europe, largely. Not just in Europe. I mean, it was yes, happening, it's in, true. It was happening in the United You're States, right. too. You're right. You're right. Anti-Semitism has which, been a long-standing we, We'd love problem. to keep a lid on that one. Yeah, we do. Because now we're all <laughs> Zionist, pro-Zionist. No, and now it's all, uh, what did they say? Um, mm. Judea, Except for the Jew people. Judeo-Christian Judeo ethics. It's yeah. like, where did the Judeo come in? Well, it's like, because evangelicals <laughs> love Jews. Yeah, until they want to kill them. Exactly. Until they think they're involved in a worldwide Illuminati conspiracy or whatever. Yeah. Whatever. That's how I size up my alliances, too. <laughs> so... That gave a lot of impetus for Jews throughout Europe to get the fuck out. <laughs> and G- when, GTFO. Maybe G- that was maybe maybe that was the origin of GTFO. I, I literally put GTFO. Yeah. Uh, word let me know that that was offensive, and I may want to change it. Oh. I I never change it when they say it's offensive. Um, and one of the places they went to was immigration friendly, as relative to the League of Nations, uh, and by the League of Nations mandate. Palestine. So, because... That's very interesting. Well, no, because the League of Nations was like, hey, you have to let Jews in. Yeah, you have to. So, they had a place to go. and well, That's why we formed a League of Nations, so that traditional powers that hate each other could give each other a one-up every now and then. Right. <laughs> and, geez, what do you know? It doesn't last. <laughs> so, within just a few years of the decade, uh, the Jewish population of Palestine went from about 30,000 to almost 400,000. Just a big influx. That's, I mean, what's going on over there today, it's almost, wow, talk about... Similar issues? Anyway, yeah, but in the the reverse. Oh, so there's a a large Palestinian immigration to Palestine? Or Arab... The open-air prison out there from people trying to... Anyway. Oh, okay. I'm very ignorant of Middle East politics, I'll completely admit. Very... Well... This was all new to me, frankly. It's the Middle East. It's never not... (laughs) No, I know that. uh, It's always unstable. Mm -hmm. The the question is, like, how? Yeah. Or which part is seeing (laughs) the most... Um, All I know is that, like, since forever... Uh, people from the United States aren't supposed to go to Yemen. <laughs> That's basically all I know. It's always been on the no-go list for well, the State Department. Well, now it is because we've helped Saudi Arabia bomb them. So. It's oh, it's always been that way. Yeah. We've, yeah, anyway. Um, so also during this time, many Arabs immigrated to Palestine. So we're getting just increased population overall. Um, and of course, that increased the conflict in Palestine, eventually giving rise to the Arab Revolt, starting in 1936. As so wh- that, why, why couldn't they have been like uh, Bert Trotman? <laughs> you know, why couldn't they have been smitten with Palestine? <laughs> oh, that's right! Like he was smitten with Britain. <laughs> yes. See, he kept his head on I mean, straight. <laughs> all they're doing, yes, he did. All they're doing is taking a 5,000 year old grudge. Yeah. Even further. <laughs> oh my god yeah i didn't even go into like oh, the whole no. holy I mean, land no, thing no this is but no. like we, we we know yeah um so as this arab revolt war on the british were getting nervous at this because they're like hey we're gonna get dragged into this war over here and you guys are fighting over here we need our forces like 
protecting us because we're about to get the shit bombed out of us. So, um, uh, God save the queen who's apparently dead now. Uh, no, uh-huh. no disrespect to pro monarchists, but are pro monarchists actually listening to our <laughs> podcast? Probably not. Uh, so. Uh, to try to appease both sides and completely missing the mark on both. <laughs> it's usually what winds up happening. Uh, they started floating the idea of setting up an independent Jewish state within Palestine. Eventually, Great Britain was distracted by a little thing called World War II. Uh, conflict continued in Palestine. The Jewish community flourished in the area. Uh, some who supported the British, some who did not. Uh, The community also received backing from an increasingly pro-Zionist United States who were horrified at the Nazi concentration camps because we're used to kinder, gentler racism where we just enslave people. You know, we don't actually go bust them (laughs) off. But we had concentration camps, too. Well, we we didn't murder them, (laughs) now, did we? See, that's the shit. That's the that's the fucking justification. It's I such mean, bullshit. But. If there's gonna be a line that you cross, I mean, it might as well be that one. But uh, let's just yeah. traumatize people. Let's not <laughs> yeah, kill them. Not kill yeah, them. yeah. That's that's great. So actually, yeah, I mean, that is better. It, it's I mean, it's better. technically better. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Relatively speaking, <laughs> there's a lot of relativity in here. Yeah. So at the end of the war, U.S. President Henry Truman called for an effect. Harry. Not Henry. I said Henry tonight. It's written Harry. I didn't have to get out your marker. Again. I did not. Why did I say his, Henry Truman? His brother, his brother Henry. <laughs> his secret a uh, twin brother. We, we put in for the weekend. Oh my god. Weekend at here, Henry's. Here, Henry. <laughs> Son any trid you like, sir. I don't know why he's British. I don't know either. <laughs> it's like Dave, the the movie Dave with uh, Kevin Clark. Oh yeah, it was a good movie. Oh, it was a good movie. So U.S. President Harry Truman called for an effective end of any immigration impediments of Jews to Palestine. Uh, Now, this did not sit well with the Arabs of Palestine, who wanted Palestine to be an independent Arab state. Still do. Yeah. Yes, they do. That's the whole idea behind free Palestine, right? Okay. So as with most colonists, once their interests were served, Britain was essentially ready to drop Palestine and get themselves out. So they basically handed the whole thing over to the brand new United Nations. Like, here, you guys figure it out. So... You guys got some fresh ideas, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, their fresh idea was (laughs) to put a resolution to a vote in 1947. Hey, let's establish a Jewish state in Palestine. There'll be the Arab state in the Israeli or the uh, Jewish state and that'll solve everything now won't it um now thanks to an agreement at the time between the US and the USSR mm-hmm. uh it was adopted that November and that kicked off a full-fledged civil war in Palestine <laughs> <laughs> It's not Everybody funny. Everybody going out it. It's not funny. But no, it, it's not. It, it's ironic it, is it, what it is. But it is. It's like, mm-hmm. it's so predictable. Mm-hmm. Like, like, what? Like, if you had to guess, <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, what's the outcome of this decision going to be? Violence. Yes. It's just like. Conflict. Uh, where is the violence going to be? Yes. How much of it is there going to be? How many That's casualties? Like, how many bodies are we talking about? Yeah. How long is it going to take to. Are we talking 20, 30, uh, 20, 30,000? What are we talking about? Right. Yeah. I can deal with 20,000. 
Like I'll How put, many zeros are uh, we putting on it? Five. Oh, God. So, um, in the middle of this war, in May of 1948, the state of Israel was declared as having been established, led by David Ben-Gurion. Do you know? Gurion? Uh, of, so, the, of the Ben-Gurions? Dave. Yeah. By Dave. Um, a mass exodus of Palestinians began and continued beyond the acceptance of Israel as a member of the United Nations. So fully legitimized by the United Nations in May of 1949. And Dave Dave was elected their first prime minister. Why not? Of course, uh, none of this brought the end <laughs> of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. I mean, nothing ever will. No, <laughs> I mean, let's, no. let's fucking be honest. I didn't even go into the <laughs> I mean, religious side yeah, of it. Because, frankly, I think both parties yeah. are in the wrong. Yeah. Because <laughs> religion is bullshit. Oh. But, whatever. No, it can keep a 5,000-year-old <clears throat> feud going. Jesus Christ. Oh, sorry. Why <laughs> <laughs> oh, would you go ahead and pray? It's all good. It's okay. It's going to be safe. Yeah. <laughs> So immediately, Palestine refused to recognize the state of Israel, declared war, <laughs> and boycotted them. So they're just like, uh-uh, not doing that. Not that they had a whole lot of power, but it was more of like a statement. Mm-hmm. You know. It was a political statement, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Nobody's paying attention to the Palestinian boycott of Israel, I'm Basically. pretty sure. Not even yeah. Palestinians. Probably. <laughs> so now, <laughs> we know about Bilmermir. Biel- and we know about Israel. Now we're going to start talking. <laughs> we know all about Israel. <laughs> yes, we know everything. <laughs> all, all of the things. All the things people are saying. Um, now we're going to talk about the airline, El Al Israel. So the airline was basically born when the state of Israel was born. So in September of 1948, so this is May, June, July, August, like five months after, uh, four, four or five months after the actual establishment of the state of Israel. Uh, and this is right in the middle of the year between when it was declared a nation and the UN recognized it as, as a country and it started holding elections and everything. One of the leaders of the new country, Chaim Weissman, uh, who would become the first president of Israel the next year, attended a conference in Geneva, Switzerland. The problem was, now I don't know how he got there, first of all. I'm just going to say that. I don't know how he got there, whether it was by train or through another country. I don't know. But he couldn't get back to Israel. The only option was a flight in a military aircraft. And Geneva had a moratorium because they, Switzerland was neutral, on military air, military transport from any nation entering their borders. So, like, no, a military plane cannot come and pick you up. They're not allowed in Switzerland. So um, he needed to get out of Switzerland, get back to Israel. So Israel took a military aircraft, a DC-4 four-engine transport plane, and modified it to add more fuel, like like added fuel tanks to it, and painted a logo on the side. <laughs> painted over all the military shit. Like Pops the blue ribbon. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Slap that on the side. <laughs> and painted like basically a fake logo on it. And it said LL, Israel Nav- National Aviation Company. There was no Israel <laughs> National Aviation Company. And according to that plane. 
Yeah, exactly. And that basically became the first LL flight, even though as soon as the plane got back to Israel, they took off the extra tanks and painted it back and it was military again. So um, the name LL was apparently fought up by David Remes, who is Israel's Minister of Transportation and one of the signers of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. So I'm so proud of myself for this next um phrase. Regardless of the ersatz nature of the first flight. <laughs> it's a Fraser word. LL was incorporated as a legitimate airline less than two months later. <laughs> like, you right. know what? Fake it so you make it. Yeah. Why not? Let's make this the national flagship carrier of yeah of Israel. And so that it's, that's what it was. And for the first few months, I mean, this is like basically a made-up company. Uh, they leased planes, and then they eventually, a few months later, went on to buy two planes from American Airlines. Uh, so 1949 saw the airline expand into international flights and take part in what was known as Operation on Wings of Eagles, which is a biblical reference, um, also known as Operation Magic Carpet, which is, that rolls off the tongue a lot easier. The operation was a mass airlift immigration of almost 50,000 Jews from other countries, mostly Yemen, to the new state of Israel. Um, and when that operation ended, new operation began, Operation Ezra and Nehemiah, both Old Testament book names and people's names, uh, the pop... Uh, Oh, anyway, that was the new operation. Sorry, I skipped sentences. Uh, so that operation ramped up the mass immigration to Israel by airlifting between 120 and 130,000 Jews from Iraq to Israel. And Al Al was another big player in this airlift and would continue to be throughout its history. We'll get into that. So between 1948 and 1952, which was the end of Operation Ezra and Nehemiah, the population of Israel doubled from 806,000 to 1,630,000 in like the span of four years, a brand new country, right? Um, for context, for what it's worth, there's now about nine and a half million people in Israel. Okay. So as a result, El Al was directly instrumental in the initial growth of the population of the new state of Israel. And it would remain a player in some landmark moments in Israel's history. So. <clears throat> in May 1960, Mossad. <laughs> that guy. Well, it's a agency. Yeah. It's the it's the Israeli CIA. It is. yep. <laughs> it's the National Israeli Intelligence Agency found and captured Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the Holocaust, a notorious Nazi leader. In Buenos Aires, Argentina, which we've talked about many times, the pipeline mm -hmm. uh, to Argentina for Nazis, they sedated Eichmann and dressed him as a flight attendant <laughs> and smuggled him on board an LL aircraft. <clears throat> okay. So they, the LL was responsible for bringing a Nazi war criminal home. Uh, apparently, they were also trying to go after Mengele. Sure. But they got um, t a tip that um, he had left Buenos Aires, and they didn't want to endanger their capture of Eichmann by staying around too long, so they left. I don't think they ever got Mengele. I don't think so either. Yeah, no. if I'm not mistaken. Um, so just one year later, 
El Al set the world record uh, at the time for the longest commercial nonstop flight when they flew from Tel Aviv to New York. So this was in 1961. It's a total of 5,760 miles or about 9,200 kilometers in nine hours and 33 minutes. So the longest flight at the time. Then they broke the record again in 1984 when they flew from, flew from L.A. to Tel Aviv, 7,000 miles or a little over 11,000 kilometers in 13 hours and 41 minutes. And then it set the record, which still stands, for the most passengers on a single aircraft. <coughs> Excuse me. And that was during yet another airlift operation, Operation Solomon, in May of 1991. Hmm. The Boeing 747 took off from Adidas Ababa, Ethiopia, with 1,086 people on board. And landed in Israel with 1,088 people on board because two people gave birth. <laughs> Just going to say, like, okay. That's oh. how it worked out. <laughs> Can you imagine 1,000 people on a single on an airplane? airplane? No. I mean, 747s are jumbo jets. They are. Still. That's a lot of people. It's a ton of people. All right. We were talking about a, <laughs> a plane crash now, weren't we? So we find ourselves aboard the historic airline. LL on Oct- in October of 1992. So the flight in question is indeed number eight, numbered 1862, not 252. Don't know what I was thinking. And despite the long history of passenger flight we just went into, including the record setting one with over a thousand passengers, this flight was different. It was a Boeing 747-200 freighter. It was a cargo plane. So it was not meant to carry passengers, it was meant to carry cargo. It was carrying a lot more stuff than it was people, specifically 114 tons of textiles and electronics. And this is the actual plane. This is a couple months before the crash. So big plane, but meant to carry cargo. Sure. So the flight was headed from JFK International Airport in New York to Ben Gurion uh, International Airport in Israel. And they were going to stop over in one place at Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport. So when the plane land, plane, plane land, my goodness. It's a good thing I don't talk much in this podcast, huh? The plane landed <laughs> at Schiphol on Sunday, October 4th at 2.40 p.m., local time uh the and the crew reported three issues with the plane so they're like hey there was some fluctuation in the speed regulation of the autopilot function they had some radio issues and there were variations in the voltage of the generator on engine three on the right wing maintenance did its thing Mm -hmm. worked on the issues refueled the plane and it was ready to go for the next leg so this is going from Amsterdam to Israel. <clears throat> so the crew swapped out at this point for the journey to Israel. Piloting the plane was Captain Yitzhak Fuchs. He was 59 years old, very well respected. He had been with LL for 28 years and had 25,000 hours of flying experience. He was three months away from his retirement. Mm. His first officer, Arnon Ohad, was 32. He had just joined El Al the previous year. He had been an Israeli Air Force pilot. Uh, he had 4,288 hours of flying experience. And the third crew member was the flight engineer, 61-year-old Gedalia Sofer, a long-timer with El Al, joined the airline in 1955 at age 24. And he had 26,000 hours of flying experience. 
<clears throat> so this crew of three had flown with with each other just the day before, had their required, you know, the pilots have their, uh, crew members have their required rest periods, mm-hmm. and then was ready to get on this flight. Now, one passenger also boarded this plane. So this was a cargo flight and not typically carrying passengers, but Demetrius, it's not even time. You have an hour to go. Stop it. Um, uh, there was one passenger, a 23-year-old woman named Anat Solomon, who was hitching a ride on this plane to Israel, either as an LL employee or the fiancé of an LL employee. Now, I saw both referenced. For sure she was engaged to an employee, Mm -hmm. but I found conflicting information over whether she was actually an employee. At any rate... Her 24th birthday was the next day, and she was going home to Israel to celebrate, and she was also going to start planning her wedding, which was going to be in January, to fellow Amsterdam LL employee, security officer Itzik Levi. He was the one who got her on the plane okay. to get her back. She was a non-revenue passenger. Hmm. <clears throat> she was hitching a ride. I mean, not like stowaway stuff, no, but yeah. yeah. So the flight, which was going to take about four and a half hours, was initially scheduled to depart from Ski Pole at uh, 5.30 p.m., but it was delayed almost an hour due to air traffic control issues, finally taking off at 6.22 p.m. Just five minutes into the flight, things started going wrong. At 6.27 p.m., flight 1862 is about 6,500 feet, or a little under 2,000 meters, over Amsterdam, over the Goimer, a local lake, just a few miles away from the airport. Suddenly, people on the ground heard a loud bang come from the sky. When they looked up, they saw a flash of fire, a trail of smoke from the right wing, and debris falling Mm. from the plane. Mm. Now, Amsterdam Air Traffic Control heard the voice of the first officer, Ohad, say, quote, LL 1862, mayday, mayday, we have an emergency, end quote. Now, air traffic control didn't know exactly what was going on, but they immediately were like, hey, do you guys want to come back to the airport? Do you want to, if if you're having an emergency, why don't you come back to Ski Pole? They said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. So within a few seconds, the crew reported, hey, there's a fire in the third Mm. engine. We're losing power in both engines three and four. So the plane started to circle back towards Ski Pole, but it became apparent really quickly that the, because the plane was so close to the airport, it had just left, it didn't have enough distance to make a landing, even on the airport's longest runway, given its current altitude and speed. At this point, they were at about 5,000 feet or a little over 1,500 meters high. So they were instructed, okay, turn around again, lower your altitude to about 2,000 feet or 600 meters um, they figured out, okay, we're going to need about 12 miles or 3,200 kilometers as an approach on this runway. So that's, that's why they were making these turns to kind of like get themselves in a position where they could make that landing and mm-hmm. have that lead up. So, oh, and then the air traffic control also told the crew, hey, you know, winds are picking up a little bit, but I mean, if you've got an emergency landing to make, <laughs> The wind's not your biggest concern, you know. So as the plane continued to turn as instructed, 
The crew let air traffic control know, quote, number three and four are out and we have problems with the flaps, end quote. So flight 1862 started approaching the airport again, but it was still not going to make it. It was going to overshoot the runway. So they're like, air traffic control is like, yep, you got to turn around again. Got to try this again. Try to approach it from the south this time. Um, keep, keep descending, keep slowing down. Let's give it a try. The crew acknowledged that they got the instructor instructions, but they're like, we are also losing control of this aircraft. Mm -hmm. So they, they were not necessarily the ones making the decisions anymore. It was the aircraft that was taking over. At 6.35 PM, OHAD said, quote, going down 1862, going down, end quote. Mm -hmm. There is on YouTube, you can hear like the the air traffic control and uh, plane communication. Mm. So they sounded pretty in control the whole time. They were not screaming or crying or anything. So they lost all control of the aircraft. Um, <clears throat> the aircraft was nosediving less than 20 kilometers or 12 miles east of the airport, straight down into the honeycomb grid, modernist architecture, apartment buildings of Bielmermere. And here is a, uh, this is the trajectory of the flights. You can see it's just like a spiral graph, basically. Oh my God. Yeah. They're just like trying to get that runway lead up and constantly not getting it. So the plane impacted the junction of two of the apartment buildings. So this is a illustration of how the plane impacted. Basically mm -hmm. dove right into it. Um, there were many, many witnesses to the crash. Obviously, air traffic control had been told we're going down. So they, they knew that that was going to happen. But Bielmermere was close enough to the airport that the air traffic controllers from their tower could see the smoke from the crash site. Jeez. Uh, so they called for help right away. Also, at the exact same time of the, the crash, remember I said that uh, crime was notoriously high in Bielmermere? Uh, well, there were two cops there investigating a robbery, and they saw it <laughs> and called for help. Um, so rescue services arrived quick. Uh, Anat Solomon's mother, Rena Solomon, later said that when she saw, back in Israel, <clears throat> the news reports of the crash, quote, I immediately understood that this was our tragedy, mm. end quote. I guess if you hear... A flight from Amster, a cargo flight from Amsterdam to Israel. You like, Crashed. you know, your daughter was on that flight. Yeah. So there was no hope at all for those in the plane or at the point of impact. The plane was demolished. The fires in the building lasted for three days. Some people in the rest of the buildings were able to evacuate. Resident jo Joanna Koch said, quote, everything flew up to the ceiling, bookcases fell over. I thought an airplane was coming through my roof. I was so scared I couldn't think. I just grabbed my coat and ran, end quote. One resident reported seeing some people jumping off of the higher floor balconies trying to escape the fire mm. that had broken out as a result of the crash. Um, apparently, like, a mother threw her infant down to, like, rescue workers mm -hmm. to get them out. Like, um, I saw uh, an Associated Press uh, article that called them the Twin Towers because it 
mm. crashed into two buildings, mm-hmm. you know, the junction of two buildings. And this was uh, almost a decade before 9-11. So. Um, so some of the injured were flown by helicopter to local hospitals, mostly for burn treatment. Because the plane had crashed into large residential buildings, there was obviously a fear that there would be a ton of people sure. who died. Initial guesses and estimates were around 200 people dead. But in the end, the official death toll was 43. That's way better. Well, we'll talk about it in a second. Yeah. So four, there were four people in the plane, 39 on the ground. 11 people were seriously injured. 15 people had minor injuries. The death toll has long been considered to be an underestimate. Oh, okay. Because Bilmermere had a large number of immigrant residents, it also included a significant number of people who were undocumented. Sure. So it is entirely possible that the death toll was much higher, maybe even a lot higher. And in fact, early reports by the Jewish Telegraphic Agency stated that 52 bodies had been recovered. Whether that was just a misreport, who knows, whatever. Um, not all the residents of Bielmermere were known, and with the fire, not all bodies were recovered, so who knows what the total death toll was. They did, however, find the bodies of at least three on board the plane. The three crew members received a joint funeral in Israel, uh, and the two who were recovered, whose bodies were recovered, Captain Fuchs and the flight engineer Gedalia Sofer, were buried side by side in Israel. Anat Solomon was also found and buried in Israel. <clears throat> the apartment residents who survived or whose next of kin were victims of the disaster who were undocumented were granted legal residency status in Amsterdam, which good, like good. Um, but this offer was not extended to those with a criminal record. Yeah. Survivors were also rehomed courtesy of the local government and given $10,000 per person for new furnishings. Some survivors went on to suffer from symptoms similar to Gulf War syndrome. So that's like chronic fatigue, insomnia, um, stomach issues, chronic respiratory infections. And they fought to be like, hey, what was that plane carrying? <laughs> and it's like, oh, textiles mm, and yeah, electronics. Things. In 1998, Al disclosed that, yeah, there had been about 190 liters of dimethylmethylphosphonate aboard Flight 1862, uh, which is a compound <clears throat> generally used as a flame retardant, hence why it was on board, like in the products or whatever, but also listed as a possible chemical weapon oh, yes. due to the, its use in the production of sarin and soman nerve gas. <laughs> so they used it in World War One too. Did they? Yes. Oh, yeah. Phosphate gas? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no wonder yeah. everybody was feeling kind of weird. Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Jesus. The Netherlands Aviation Safety Board investigated the accident, and the report was released on February 24th, 1994. It found that the cause of the crash was not just the loss of power in engines three and four, but the loss of the engines altogether. In other words, the two engines fell off the plane. Jesus. Off the plane. Um, now, the pilot, the flight crew didn't know this. That's why they were saying, hey, there's a fire on these engines. That's all the information they had. They couldn't see the engines. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a line of visibility to them. Now, these, pl- these engines fell off the plane 
kind of by design. So the Boeing 747 designed to have engines, the engines be held on by fuse pins that would break off cleanly in the event the plane was overloaded and the engines failed. So here is, oh, mm, I forgot to show you this. This is the actual crash site. Oh man, yeah. wow. Wow. Pretty bad, Damn. huh? Yeah. Hmm. So this is like the assembly. So you can kind of see the engine is kept on by that pin mm -hmm. thing in there. So, <clears throat> but the idea is if um, there's a, if the plane is overloaded, there's engine failure, there's a risk that the engine could just fall off. And if it didn't break off cleanly, it could hit the wing, it could hit the fuel tank, it could really cause major damage. Now, just losing the engine itself isn't necessarily a guarantee that things are gonna go catastrophic. It has multiple engines. You can still potentially land the plane even mm -hmm. having lost engines. So the idea was, well, if there's a like this fail-safe mechanism, have the engine sort of fall off nice and clean, then at least it's not gonna hit the wing, it's not gonna hit the fuel tank and the pilots can still land the plane in an emergency landing. So that was the idea behind this design. I would rather just keep the engines. Like, like <laughs> well, that's all, ideal. Like, like, like all together. But the like, idea is if the engine was going to come off one way or the other. But why is it going to, like, like it's the other? I did not yeah. dig into the no, engineering of it, but the idea is... If if the engine was oh, if the plane was overloaded, that engine's coming off. So either it's going to come off nice and cleanly, or it's going to come off badly and damage the plane. So that was the mechanism to make it come off cleanly. It's not like it was going to randomly come off. No, I understand, but that's the idea. Still, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the problem is, uh, flight eighteen sixty two was not overloaded. So why did this pin? disengage why did this engine come off it was not overloaded um the fuse pins had been cracked due to fatigue they mm. they had just been used to a point where they were fatiguing that led to the failure of the fuse pins it caused engine three to detach but because of the cracks it didn't just cleanly detach like it was supposed to uh it it did exactly what those pins were supposed to stop. It hit engine four, mm. knocked engine four off. So in other words, engine four detached, not cleanly at all. And it all damaged the wing itself. Exactly what it was designed not to do. The crew did manage to keep some control over the plane initially because they had gained enough speed. Sure. So they were kind of able to keep it under control. Once they lost altitude, they lost... Um, they, they were reducing speed. They completely lost control. And that led to the crash. So the official probable cause of the accident was given to be the design of this 747 engine pin system and a failed system to ensure structural integrity. It's like mm -hmm. clearly nothing was in place to make sure this wasn't going to happen. The report stated that, quote, because of the marginal controllability, a safe landing became highly improbable, if not virtually impossible. Yeah. Unquote. So the crew had been, uh, I already said that the crew couldn't see the engine. So that's why they said they were on fire. LL's own investigation found that there were witnesses aboard a Dutch Coast Guard ship 
Who saw the engines falling? They called air traffic control at Amsterdam and said, hey, there's a plane whose engines just fell off. But air traffic control didn't tell mm. the, the crew. Now, whether that would have helped, if it would have given them more information, who knows? Mm. Who knows, really, you know? Um, the safety board recommended that the 747, hey, how about you redesign this, maybe? How about, like, we don't have a scenario where the engines fall <laughs> right? off? Right? Like, is, is there something we can do to make that happen? Hey, just throwing it out there. <laughs> Let me run this up the flagpole, see if yeah. anybody salutes it. Oh, my God. Um, it was also discovered that less than a year earlier, at the end of 1991, China Airline, Airlines Flight 358, another 747 cargo flight, had suffered the exact same engine detachment on the 747, leading to the loss of the crew of five. Oh, man. Al criticized Boeing, like, hey, <laughs> you could have fixed it before, like, another year passed and our Boeing same thing happened. They were, they were like, we did the numbers. It was only four people. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what are those? Like, they're mm -hmm. not important. Yeah. They don't have families or anything. And this design flaw led to another incident, the detachment of an engine on a Japanese Airlines 747 in March of 93. Fortunately for that crew, they were able to return and land safe, make a safe emergency. crazy. I like, know. I've never heard of detaching engines on I a fucking know. plane. Well, apparently it wasn't a great idea, and they fixed it. <laughs> so, yeah, Boeing's had some issues. Well, I mean... Over the years, you know? If you make aeronautical equipment, then yeah. you're going to. That's true. So, as for Bill Mermier, uh plants had already been placed at the time of the crash to start demolishing some of these high-rises. Mm. The crash of the flight just kind of sped up the process and did some of the work, ironically. So they started to... The odds of hitting one of these, too. I know, right? I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Specific. It was yeah. It was going to hit something in a in the capital city, you know, but... Yeah. Um, so they started dismantling most of the buildings. They purposefully did not demolish them. Okay. One, because... People, locals probably wouldn't like to see these buildings being smashed down after witnessing them being smashed down in such a violent way. Um, and they, so they were dismantling it one floor at a time. They also didn't want to draw more unfavorable comparisons to Pruitt Igo, the building in St. Louis or the projects in St. Louis, which had been demolished. So they're like, no, we're just going to nicely take them apart one bit at a time. And it took them a long time, obviously. And they used the opportunity to redesign the neighborhood into more practical and popular mixed-use space, mm -hmm. which is a lot more popular now, and a less austere architectural style. This neighborhood revitalization led to Bilmermere's current reputation as an affordable but safe place to live, much lower crime rates, and it still maintains a healthy socioeconomic and ethnic mix of residents. Interesting. Sad that that's what brought it on. Um, but that was the story of LL Flight 1862, also known as Bilmer Ramp or Bilmer Disaster. Okay. So we went from Amsterdam we, we to covered, Israel to... covered quite a bit in this yes. uh, episode. Yes, indeed. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
I had a lot of caffeine in the past few days. <laughs> yeah, that's apparent. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the odds of it hitting this building. I know. I mean, it's not like they're huge skyscrapers or anything. It's no, just like not really. Kind of, what, like maybe seven, eight stories high? Probably something like that. Something like that. I saw reference to the seventh story, so there's at yeah. least seven stories. Yeah. Interesting design. Um, yeah. Apparently it didn't work out for, for multiple reasons. Maybe but... the architecture was cool, but the whole plan was yeah. a bad idea. Like, they just yeah. didn't think things through completely, apparently. Yeah. So. But. Uh, the idea of. Of just a plane falling out of the sky yes. and landing on your house. Planes or... and vehicles crashing into houses is a weird idea. It is, yeah. But it has happened. It happens. <laughs> Many times. Uh, Billy Joel did it once. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he crashed into a house. He did. He was drunk driving, right? Yeah. yeah. And you told me not to drive, but I made it home alive. <laughs> well, I mean, that he did. Well, like, like, like yes, naturally. he did. I just yeah. never thought of that lyric in that light. I don't know if he did, you may be right, prior to the crash or not. Yeah, way prior. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He crashed in, like, the 90s or something. No, later. it was, like, the 2000s. Like oh, the early that, 2000s. oh, okay, okay. It was old Billy Joel. Billy, Billy Joel'd. <laughs> <laughs> Where he didn't have his curls anymore. He had the close oh, no, crack was, hair, yeah. Yeah, white, yeah. Old completely. white guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, William Joel. <laughs> William H. Joel. <laughs> he comes up on this podcast a lot, oddly. <laughs> well, I mean, he crashed into a house. That's he did. Right. Um, and but, wrote we didn't light the fire yes he did yeah he did that too uh, he, however he did not crash a cargo plane into it no he that. did not he, did he kill anybody I don't think so just damaged a house I don't think so something like that <laughs> well I guess if someone's damaged gonna himself, damage your house yeah if someone's gonna damage your house you'd want it to be someone rich <laughs> yeah right he's good for it <laughs> yeah oh I don't need no it's okay homeowner's insurance yeah. I don't need you I've got this cover <laughs> it's like he was driving a Maserati so mm-hmm. should be alright the dude be... was married to Christy Brinkley he's yeah, fine should be able to cover this one mm-hmm. but uh right Christy Brinkley long time ago yeah like it was oh. yeah anyway like, <laughs> we're, <laughs> just, we're just covering just covering everything yes so since we're covering everything we should probably just end it I think so I think Demetrius wants us to yes I think he does so that was LL flight 1862 crossed out from 252. <laughs> Bill Maramp. Uh, is that, did I pronounce Bill that? Maramp. Bill, Bill Maramp. Yes. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week. <laughs>